In 2014, the Pew Research Center uh, conducted some surveys on Americans asking specific questions regarding religious views, okay? They uh, put these into different categories based upon a person's religious affiliation, what religion they claim to be. And they lined up a whole bunch of questions about faith and God, Bible, resurrection, life after death, sin, a whole bunch of things. A whole bunch of fascinating finds from that particular research study, but just a couple I wanted to draw your attention to today. Of those who were surveyed, 15 to 20% of people who self-identified as evangelical Christians, that means Christians, uh, there's a whole bunch of subcategories of what that meant, Catholic, Orthodox, uh, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, we're under that one on this particular heading, a whole bunch of different things, mainline, um, evangelical Protestant, that's, that's those who would typically say, we believe the world needs the gospel, we are to be evangelistic to tell the world they need Jesus, okay? 15 to 20% of people in that category don't believe in either heaven or hell. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Bible. The world needs Jesus, but there is no heaven or hell. That that was 15 to 20% of evangelical Christians. Another line item there was that 72% of all Americans, everyone, uh, atheists included, everyone who was, who was surveyed, 72% of all Americans believe in the existence of heaven. 72%. But only 58% believe in hell. 72% in heaven, 58% in hell. One thing that was really interesting about this particular survey is they actually broke it out in columns you could see uh, in each uh, religious camp, each, each religion. And in all of them, every single one of them uh, that, that was on the list, without distinction, even atheists, this disparity held true, that people were more likely to believe in heaven than hell. Did you know there are atheists, not, not agnostics, not those who haven't made a decision about what they believe are uncertain. Those who would say, absolutely, there is no God, no supernatural. There are people on that camp who believe in heaven. And a few, a smaller amount, that believe in hell. But no matter who is interviewed, more believe in heaven than hell. Now, I'm betting that's not very surprising to you. You're, prob- <gasps> I, I, you're probably like, yeah, I, I, that probably fits with what we might think. Because thinking about the eternal realities of heaven and hell, that makes people uncomfortable, regardless of which you're thinking about. And quite honestly, for good reason. For one to consider heaven, he or she must dwell upon supernatural realities that are greater than themselves. And they're often then reminded that there is a God who judges our actions. Some people are getting into heaven. In fact, if you were to ask most people how you get into heaven, they'll likely say something like, good people will get there. Bad people, maybe not. Good people go to heaven. I'm mostly good, so I'll go there. That's typically the way that you'll hear people talk. And it's inevitable that at least some will eventually have the nagging question, but am I good enough? Am I good enough? And so, it's uncomfortable to even consider heaven. 
Even more so, though, I think it's uncomfortable to consider or think about the reality of hell. It's far scarier for people, and for obvious reasons. Hell is scary to think of. It's supposed to be scary to think about. It is a terrifying reality. Not only is hell utterly horrific, I mean, it is the eternal standard by which all temporary struggles are compared. Right? That battle was hell. Those two years of my life, we went through hell. That kind of language people will use. People know it's bad. But hell not only reminds us of God's present displeasure with our sin, but of the ultimate and eternal consequence for our sin. God may bring a drought now. Funds may dry up. And a lot of people hold to the view, right, that God will just give, it's just like that, it's a vow. If, you get lots, if good things are going in your life, God is pleased with you. If, it, if you see a lot of bad, God is displeased. That's a very typical way that people tend to think. And so they might see a little bit of maybe some of God's judgment or wrath a little bit in that way, but nothing like that compares to the eternal weight of the ultimate consequence for sin that lasts for forever. We've been slowly unpacking John 3.16 since I started there. We don't usually go quite as slow through one verse in the Bible. And I'm not trying to belabor this, but we are in John 3.16. It's one of the most familiar and famous verses in the Bible. And for good reason. It's a great verse. It's It's an enormous summary of huge, weighty, incredible truths to mine out. And I paused our typical pace. I slowed down like, like when you're driving through a school zone, just, just slow down, get through this one much more patiently, cautiously, because I wanted to take note of some of the things that are going on here. This will be the fourth and final week in John 3.16. Next week we'll move on in a little bit more um, rapid pace. So I'm just going to read that verse as we have each of the weeks we've covered it. I'm just going to read that verse out loud. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, you can memor- if you have it memorized, you're saying it in your head, or you can just listen, and I'll, I'll just read it out loud here. I'm going to read the verse out loud, pray, and then we'll go back through, and I'm going to hope to unpack this and provide some application at the end. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we love this verse. Christians love this verse. It has been an enormously helpful verse for our own study, for our own minds, for teaching tools, for for children up to adults, for sharing the gospel with people. It's such a wonderful and beautiful summary. These are the words of Jesus, and we are so grateful for them. But Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to not become so familiar with it that we might not see some of the beautiful truths and the terrifying realities that ought to be present when we consider such an important verse as this. So, Lord, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit. Serve us by enlightening our our hearts, our minds. Help us to walk away with a deeper understanding of this wonderful verse. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I began preaching through this verse, I told you, and we knew the context of this was Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He came to Jesus for some understanding in the nighttime, and Jesus has an interaction with him. Lots of wonderful things being said, but this is in, that's the context. He's sharing these things with this Nicodemus. And I explained to you that while Jesus says 
bunch of wonderful truths here. None of these truths are unique here. You can find them all over the Bible. You can find them all over in John. In fact, you can find most of these exact same truths we've been unpacking in other places in his discourse with Nicodemus in this exact chapter. So the question we proposed the first week is, why is John 3.16 here? If Jesus says this a whole bunch of other ways in a whole bunch of other places, is it just for repetition? Which it could be. Or is there something especially that he wants us to take from it here? And I, I argued that the purpose of this verse is to tell why God sent his son. I think that's why John 3.16 is here chiefly. To tell us why he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why did you do that, God? Because he so loved the world. His great love for the world was the motivation for that. I spent a whole week unpacking and trying to make a case for that. The next week following that, we went to the the next phrase in the verse, that he gave his only son. We just spent our energy looking at that means Jesus is a gift. He's a good gift given by the most perfect giver. No more perfect gift has ever been given. No more perfect giver has ever offered anything. That by itself should make this exciting to us. But just as any gift... Jesus must be received. You must receive Jesus as a good and perfect gift. The week after that, we looked at the third phrase in this verse, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, we saw that a person receives Jesus by believing in him. In other words, if you lived in Jesus' hometown, you lived in Capernaum, you lived in Jerusalem, you met Jesus in the historical day he walked the earth and invited him into your home, received him. That's not the same thing as believing in him for salvation. Receiving him means to believe in him, embrace, accept all that he is and what he has taught. And what we especially were reminded of there is that salvation is not obtained by works of the law, but by faith and faith alone. And so we said, stop trying to, as so many in the world have thought you can, work your way to him. Start doing more good things, less bad things. That's how you get to God. No, the gospel is repent of your sins, believe in him, be saved. Be saved according to his works, not your own. But all have not received the good gift of Jesus. While he has been offered, not all have relieved, received him. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, there was that correlation again, he gave the right to become children of God. Who are the children of God? Those who have believed, those who have received, and that's not everybody. That's what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus. That's the warning part of this verse. And you and I know not all have salvation. He's going to go on to make a major argument for here in the next few verses. So what happens for those who do not receive him? What happens to those who do receive him? That's what we're going to look at today, the final phrase of this verse, the realities of heaven and hell. I'll just read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The word perish here means literally to be destroyed or to be utterly lost or ruined. That's what that Greek term means. In fact, in other places in John, when he uses that same word, that's translated here, perish. It's oftentimes translated as either lost 
or ruined. It's the same idea in mine. Utterly lost, utterly ruined. Not like you lost your car keys in the couch cushion and just give me another minute and I'll find them. Utterly lost, They're gone for forever. That, that's the kind of language that perish is here. So that they should not perish. Whoever believes in him should not be utterly lost, utterly ruined, but have eternal life. And so perish then does not merely mean that people will die. Because even Christians who have salvation die. Every Christian dies. Jesus died. All of his, all of his disciples die. Nicodemus, who heard this, died. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He means spiritual death, eternal separation from the presence of God in hell. What is death? It's the separation from life. Take life and remove it, you have death. That's what it is. If you remove the giver of life, from another creature, from a creature. That's what you have, eternal death. Simply put, perish and eternal life simply refer to hell and to heaven. That's what John means. Do you remember what Jesus used as the Old Testament illustration that led up to this verse? It was the two or three verses right before this. I'll just remind you. He pointed to an Old Testament story. He's saying this to Nicodemus. And the Old Testament story goes back to the days of Moses when the Israelites are wandering in the desert after leaving Egypt. And he tells the story of a time when the people had sinned against God and they're grumbling. He sent as punishment fiery serpents, venomous serpents. They bit all the people. Like they were, like, came upon a nest of them or something. And people are dropping dead all over the place. It said many had died. And so Moses calls out to God. God tells him to fashion an image of the serpent out of bronze, he puts it on a pole, and the only thing that people need to do is to turn and look to the serpent, and they will be saved. That's exactly what happens. So Jesus brings up that occurrence, and he attaches it to himself. He explains, that's what's happening now. Just as that happened then, now the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's talking to himself. Jesus must be lifted up that all who look upon him shall be saved. Okay? So that was the illustration he used. And if you were here when we walked through that part prior to John 3.16, we talked about what do you do when you get bitten by a snake? If you're out in the wilderness, you get bitten by a snake. What's your only hope? Get medical help. That's it. That's like really all you got. Because you're headed towards death. Mankind is already in a fallen state. Already like that. You are already bitten by your sin. You're not walking through your life avoiding the fiery serpents, hopeful that you don't get bit. You are bit. You are dying. That is your condition. You, like every other human before you, are heading towards eternal death in your natural self. The current condition of all natural mankind is that of a perishing soul, headed towards utter loss and utter ruination. That is our starting point. That's why in the end of this exact same chapter, uh, John the Baptist, as he talks, you'll hear what, hear what he says here in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So same truth Jesus just shared there. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, and listen to what he says, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath he's talking about there is not a future wrath. Someday you're going to have wrath. We, we know there's future wrath. He's saying now.
God's wrath remains on the person if they do not believe in Jesus. This should just remind us again, we must be saved. We must be redeemed. We must be rescued out of our current state. This is not a tightrope walk in our lives to avoid doing something deserving of hell. Our li- that's not our life. And that's the way a lot of people live. Do something, if, do something to avoid judgment. Do something to avoid wrath. You've got to get it through your head. You already deserve it. Later in John, we will have many more opportunities to discuss the realities of eternal life, heaven. That exact same phrase is going to be used a few more times here in John 3. And so we're going to spend more time talking about that and what that means, what he's talking about, what the eternal state looks like, what the present state of regenerate believers is now and what it'll be in the future. We'll walk through all of those things together. But here, because the word perish is used and he's referring to hell, that kind of destruction, we're going to spend a little bit more time there today. I think that's what this verse is especially helpful to remember. So let me give you a definition for hell. I'm not making this one up. This is one that's pretty well attested to and you probably have heard before. It's simple. Hell is eternal conscious torment away from the presence of the Lord apart from his common grace. Hell is eternal conscious torment away from the presence of the Lord apart from his common grace. If you're familiar with Bible study, if you've read through the the New Testament, you, you might no, Jesus talked more about hell and the details and the horrors of it than any, any author in the entirety of the Bible. Because he really wanted people to know the gravity of what he was speaking and what he came to save them from. Okay. As I shared earlier in this sermon, many people object to the existence of hell. I think that the biggest objection that people have to hell is one of justice. It's a question of justice in the minds of many people. In fact, if you were to ask them about this, you'd probably get something like this. Here's here's a shot. How is it just for God to punish seemingly minor and certainly temporary sins with eternal judgment? That's the question. The idea of corresponding punishment for wrongdoing is not typically something that I think most people struggle with. The idea is it feels disproportionate. You're telling me one short little breath in the wind life here and what we did with that is deserving of trillions of years of torment? That, that, that feels disproportionate. Especially if a person considers their sin more lightly. And so here, I just want to offer two questions that I would, I would offer, to, two answers to that question, I should say. If someone were to, were to posit that, how is it just for God to punish temporary sins with eternal judgment? Here, here's two ways I would answer this. First, your sin is worse than you think it is. That's the first thing I would say. And it's not about your sin as much as it's about who you sinned against. I think most people acknowledge that they are not perfect. Very typical phrase. I know I'm not perfect. But they also tend to, we have a predisposition to think that our sins are kind of like jaywalking. Uh, I mean, yeah, I could have just, I should have done different, but maybe worth a slap on the wrist. It's kind of like going five miles per hour over the speed limit. You know, you get pulled over going 30 in a 25 and get a ticket, you're indignant. <laughs> what? What? A ticket? for five over? 
You know you were wrong. You're not, you're not denying it. Yeah, sorry, sorry, officer. I went 30. But there's kind of like a seriously, this is, this is disproportionate. It was not that big of a deal. I think that's the way a lot of people consider their sin. I didn't murder anybody. I, 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 didn't, I didn't do genocide like some people on the planet have done. And don't forget the few good things I've done. To, you know, that's the way we all tend to think about ourselves, I think. But let me ask you this, and this is a question that might help you when you're talking to others in this same gospel conversation. Ask them, what is the worst possible sin a person can commit? What's the most grievous sin a human being can perform? You know, Jesus told us the greatest commandment. What is the single, most holy, sanctified, important, high-up commandment that there is? And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you break the single greatest commandment, that is the single most grievous sin. Now, we're so human-centric, we'll go, well, that didn't hurt anybody. Uh, It didn't kill someone. Yeah, because we're thinking about what's our relationship with others. We're not thinking about our relationship to God. But Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you violate that, you have broken the greatest commandment and are guilty of the most grievous sin. In fact, every other sin that exists flows downstream from that one. That's the first thing I would say. Your sins are worse than you think that they are. Second thing, People seem to imagine that sinning stops when they die. There's an interesting thing that happens in the way that we process through this stuff. Biblically, I have no reason to believe that that's true. From a biblical standpoint, I have no reason to believe that it is true that people stop being culpable for sin, falling short of the glory of God after they die. I don't know that we can make that case at all from the Bible. In fact, I think the evidence goes the other direction. We even have a couple of little touch points to this. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20 that Satan will be bound and thrown into prison. Christians love to debate exactly when that's going to happen. That's not what I'm talking about here. I know when it'll happen. I'll tell you another time. Um, I'm, just, I'm totally joking about that. Um, Satan's thrown into a prison. A thousand years, he's bound and chained. And regardless of the disagreements over exactly when that's going to happen, all Christians are agreed upon the result of his release. After Satan's 1,000-year timeout, does he come out repentant and holy? Lord, I, can't have, I was without you for so long. Forgive me. Am I sin? No, 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 no. He comes out with a fury to encircle the camp of the saints, to make war on the people of God. There is not one repentant bone in his body by the time he comes back onto the scene. I want you to consider for a moment, if a man goes to jail for the crime of burglary, he, 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 he gets caught breaking into a house to steal someone's TV. It's a crime. No one would deny that's a crime. There's worse crimes, but it's a crime. Goes to jail... Let's say five years, he might get off in three, good behavior kind of thing, right? While he's serving his time in prison, while he's serving his punishment, he tackles a guard and stabs him to death. Is that criminal now getting out at the end of his five-year sentence? No, because he is now culpable for the additional crime of killing the guard. 
And if he killed a guard the week following and the week following that and following that, you're following where I'm going, it's not as though once you are in the place of punishment, no sins can be accounted to you, no culpability for crime is ever meted out. That doesn't work that way. And once a person is in hell, they are separated from the glory and goodness of God. The common grace of God is no more. There is no reason to believe that God does still not hold them accountable for the sins of not loving him and worshiping him as the highest treasure. And so this is why I think, again, at the very least, it could be helpful to see why trillions of years of punishment, because trillions of years of crimes, the greatest crime, repeatedly, forever and ever. I don't think it's possible for a person in hell to come to a point of repentance and go, oh, I do love you most, God. I don't think it's possible. And so I think that's one of the reasons hell goes on for forever. You may disagree. You may think, oh, Rich, I'm not sure. Okay. That's fine. But you and I have to acknowledge we have many questions about heaven and hell, and particularly about hell. But perhaps the most important thing that people need to know about hell is that it's avoidable. The most important thing we need to be sure of regarding hell, it's avoidable. And how can a person avoid hell? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Whoever believes in him the only son sent by God. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What does Nicodemus need to do to not perish? Believe in Jesus. What do you today need to do to not perish, not go to hell? Believe in Jesus. What should you share with people, lost people in your life that you want good for? What would you share with them? Believe in Jesus. That's the cry. If you're not a believer here today, that's what you need to know. This is the call. Whatever you have ever done, or whatever you think you've not done, you're a sinner deserving the wrath of God. The wrath of God remains on you, all of us. And your only hope is for that sin to be punished in Jesus and not on you. And that only happens by belief. He takes your sins to the cross. He dies for them. He bears the punishment, the weight of the wrath of God on him for you, on your behalf. So that by that belief, you can have eternal life. And just as Jesus was buried... After his death, and three days later, he rose again. If you believe on him, you can be raised to new life. You can have the resurrection of life, the eternal life that John talks about here. That's what we want. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And we're going to say it every time we step up to this pulpit until Jesus returns. Believe and be saved. That's it. Hell is avoidable. I want you to consider what's at stake here. These are huge realities. These are huge things. I was talking to little Naomi. She's our eight-year-old, and we were talking about heaven and hell. We were doing some um, just Bible time together at the end of the night, and the kids love peppering me with all the questions then, and it's just a good time to chat about some of those things. And she started asking all these questions about heaven and eternity and how long it lasts, and she goes, I'm going to stop. My head hurts. She said, it's like that. And I was like, yeah, this stuff is weighty. It's big. How do you fit that in your minds? There is so much at stake here. Here's what I want to do with our remaining time. I want to, I want to try to offer up some application points here. I want to consider what a right perspective on heaven and hell produces in the heart and mind of a believer. What a right perspective on heaven and hell produces. Uh, there's a long list of these. I had to cut a bunch just because I was concerned about time. Here's ones that I, just, I, I think we can especially be helped by this morning. 
what a right perspective on heaven and hell produces. First thing, a right fear of God. A right fear of God. If you, if you really get in your mind, as much as a creature can, the eternality, the foreverness of heaven and hell, and the perfect glories of one, and the awful horrors of another. If you, if you can even just get close to us, assuming those distinctions and kind of get that in your mind at all, you come face to face with the reality that our God is a fearful and an awesome, a fearsome and awesome God. And don't take my word for it. This is exactly what the Bible speaks on repeat. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says it this way. And notice, notice the connection that Jesus says about fear of God and hell. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus doesn't go, don't fear. Don't fear God. He says, fear. Why? Because he has the powers of heaven and hell in his hand. That's why. Do Christians need to fear in the way that the world would fear? No, no, no. We don't need to fear, oh no, God, maybe tomorrow you're going to throw me in. Maybe you're really going to finally get fed up with me and that's it. That's not the kind of fear. The Bible, the Bible rejects that, refutes that wholesale. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs tells us. In fact, Psalm 25 says this about the fear of the Lord. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Hmm? Listen, no other phobia you have works this way. No other phobia. So if you're trying to go, okay, I'm afraid of spiders. What does that make you want to do? Lay down in a bed of spiders. No, 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 no. You don't want to get closer to those. You don't want to be comforted to the edge of a cliff if you're afraid of heights. If you're afraid of sharks in the water, you don't, you don't want to draw near to the sharks. It's different. Your phobias of created things are altogether different than the fear of the Lord. The closer you get to God, the bigger and more mighty and awesome he is. And you lean back and look and see his wonders, and fear is the absolute result. You'd be a fool to not fear that. I grew up in the west suburbs of Chicago, and a very typical field trip that we would do, like in elementary school on up, is about once a year, we'd all get on the bus, and we'd drive into the city of Chicago. And at that time, the city of Chicago had the tallest building in the world, and that was, at that time, the Sears Tower. I'm pretty sure it's, at this point, called the Willis Tower. And so we'd, we'd slowly make our way, and one of the teachers would go, oh, there it is, we can see it through the trees, and you can see way on the horizon the Sears Tower, and it was just sticking up higher than anything else. And then you'd see the skyline as you got closer in the other buildings, and it wasn't until as, as you got closer and closer, it got bigger and bigger, and finally when we get off the bus, and they marched us all holding hands together, field trip style, right in front of that building on the sidewalk, they'd say, you're there, and we'd look around and then look up and then lean back. And it was like you'd lean back. If you've ever been in the big cities, in any tall building, but particularly the really tall ones, you lean back and feel like it's just going to fall on you. I mean, you just you keep looking up, 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 up. It's just, in some ways, a relationship with God is like that. The closer you get to him, the more awesome he is to behold, the more fearsome. Oh, God, you are bigger than I ever thought. That's, that's what we see. No one gets closer to God and then goes, oh, shorter than I thought. No, it doesn't happen. This is why those in the Bible who've gotten the closest to God responded in terror. The visions of almighty heaven, you see in Isaiah and Ezekiel and John in the book of Revelation, it falls before even, even angels oftentimes. They're, oh my goodness, 
They know they have peace with God. They know that they love the Lord. They know that they honor and trust him. They have their faith and commitment to him, and yet they are terrified for good reason. A right perspective on heaven and hell produces in the heart a right fear of God. Fear our Lord and be wise. Second, a right perspective on heaven and hell produces motivation for evangelism. That, that, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? A right understanding of heaven and hell. How, how can you not, if you know every single person in your life is going somewhere when they die and they will stay there for forever, forever and ever and ever and ever. You get, you get eternity. You understand what I mean. How could we not be motivated towards evangelism in that? Not just foreign missions, global. That includes your neighborhood and beyond. Every human soul. People need to know the good news. In fact, Paul says that he says this kind of thing on many different occasions. Here's one that we especially remember when we think of missions, the missionary efforts, telling the gospel to the world that more would be saved. Romans 10, 13 through 15. Again, probably a familiar one for some of you. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? Well, Paul has spent 10 chapters walking through all about what salvation is and the wrath of God upon people and the unrighteousness of all of us that don't seek him, uh, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All deserving is just wrath. We have been slaves to sin. And here he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? Awesome, obvious, logical progression. And what's the cry of his heart here? We have to tell people. That's what he's saying. They have to know. And how are they going to know if we don't tell them? Later in this chapter, what's he going to say? Salvation comes through hearing and hearing of the word of Christ. That's what it is. You have to tell people. They have to hear the word. And if we don't, what's going to happen? That's the cry of Paul's heart here. In eternity, there are only two possible destinations for you. Heaven and hell, that's all you get. And so, so think about it this way. If you're looking for motivation to missions, evangelism, it, you, can, you can choose one of a couple of tacts to get there. And I've said this before, so here's my disclaimer again. I do not believe that a Christian's chief motivator for missions should be creaturely stuff, mankind, that they need something good instead of something bad. It's a wonderful motivation. I don't think it's the chief one. Our chief motivation should be God deserves worship. And he needs more voices singing praise to him forever in heaven. Let's build the choir. I think that's the way we should be thinking first. But when you think about motivations for missions, you can either draw on the impulse that's the desire for another image bearer to not experience the devastation and horrors of hell. So compassion like that. Oh, I don't want them to endure that. Or it can be the motivation that's the desire for another image bearer to join you in eternal bliss. Those are related but different. And you can, you can use either one of those in your hearts to compel you towards missions. But I do believe that that is a result of a right understanding of heaven and hell. We know the way to go from eternal death to eternal life. And simply considering that should compel us to share that good news with others. Hey, I found the way! It's, it's over here! Guys, it's here! This is how you go to life. 
That path leads to death. It motivates our missions. Third reason, or third, third thing that a right perspective on heaven and hell produces. Third thing, a serious perspective on life and faith. A serious perspective on life and faith. When I say that, I just mean it's so easy in our day to kind of just float through life with a little flippant mentality or focus on too much temporal things or get ourselves all just caught up all the time in the distractions of life that are utterly meaningless to eternity. It's something all of us need to be guarded of. We all have our categories. Every one of us, we, we have that there. We all could quickly fall prey to different hobbies and interests and stuff that just keep our attention and our affections. And we always, be, we always must be watchful about this. It's so easy in our day to just fill our time with useless hobbies. You're constantly surrounded by distractions, frivolous pleasures at every moment. Even something simple as a phone in your hands. Just access to the World Wide Web everywhere you go. So whatever your brand of distraction is, the news, the stock markets, sports, entertainment, even stuff that's kind of innocuous, uh, new tools that they're building out there, how to go fishing better, all of it, I mean, anything, it can just absorb your mind. And I, I think that I've, I've thought of myself, I don't know if that, that's really my thing so much. That's not really my distraction. I don't usually get super involved with the phone, and I'm not really on any social media to speak of. I was, I'm doing pretty good. I'm feeling all right by that. And then while I was on a sabbatical, uh, I took my, my phone, my iPhone, into the pool with my kids. I was taking videos of them under the water because it says on the commercials they're IP67 rated. And my wife was like, I wouldn't do that. That's going to break. And I was like, honey, the commercials don't lie. Well, it broke. It, it, it just utterly died and she was, well, told you so. <laughs> so I took that phone and I had to just bury it. And for about maybe five or six days, I didn't have a phone. And it was awesome. I didn't realize how often I would just reach and just check. Maybe just for the, the time or something. I've got a watch here. But just to check the time or something. Or, or did, a, did, did a package come and someone ring the door? Just a thousand little things. How many times I was just distracted to do that. And then I went on a, I went on a trip just, just, uh, just myself. I went out just to spend some time with the Lord out in the wilderness. And I parked the car at a trailhead, put all my food and stuff on my backpack for, for about four days, and went out in the wilderness. I did not see another human soul for the entirety of the time out there, not one. And it was just glorious. It was just awesome being so just alone out in the wilderness. It was an amazing experience. I'd highly recommend it. But as I was out there, uh, I had no reception anywhere. I kept hiking to the top of uh, mountain peaks to try to get reception to send, you know, I'm okay, text to Laura. And uh, it, I didn't get anything. So other than the use of a camera, I had nothing. It was another period of time in that sabbatical. The Lord goes, sabbatical for real. Put that away. And, and, and I, I thought, I'm just not distracted very often by that kind of stuff. And I, I realize now, whoa, I totally have been distracted by those things. I totally am susceptible to that. I encourage you to figure out what are those places that might be robbing your mind and your heart from giving the attention to eternal things. You may have more than you think that are out there. I think few things are more damaging to a believer than losing sight of eternity. And that's why the New Testament continually says this stuff. Here's a few places. Colossians 3, 2. Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Fix your eyes on heaven. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He, he's encouraging us to stop just focusing on the temporal right here. John, the author of this gospel, says this in his, uh, one of his letters later in the New Testament. 
1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a, that's a weighty thing to say. Okay, John, so tell me more. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. Okay? And then he says this in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see how he compares the temporary with the eternal and how we can just quickly go, look, don't, don't let the world drag you down into the purely temporal. Keep your mind above this. You may know that as the Roman Empire expanded and it grew in population, its leaders began to employ a political strategy. We look back at it now and it's been recorded in history as panem et circensis. That's Latin for bread and circuses. They would give free bread or highly subsidized uh, wheat to the people so that they would always be fed, and then they would provide tons of different outlets for entertainment. That's where they came up with the gladiatorial, gladiatorial uh, games and the chariot races. They opened arenas and uh, pavilions and theaters and the Colosseum during that era, and it was all because they wanted to pacify the populace because the principle is sound. It's almost undebatable. They knew that a well-fed and indulgent people are far easier to control than those who are hungry and bored. And if you have kids, you know this certainly. If you want another 30 minutes to yourself, what do you do? Give them a snack and set them in front of Bluey. Entertainment and snacks, done. And so, people throughout history have known that this can happen. Our enemy, our spiritual enemy today, I believe, does the exact same thing. He cannot steal us away from our good shepherd. He, he's hopeless to that front. There's no hope that the enemy has to take you out of the hands of Christ. Do you know what his hope is? To keep you complacent. To keep you on the bench. To keep you off the battlefield. To keep you in the fighting hole on your phone. Social media with your friends. To keep you from doing the Great Commission, glorifying God by your sanctification and by evangelization of the world. That's what his hope is. And he can and does often distract us into being complacent, to be inattentive to a sanctification, negligent regarding the Great Commission. You and I must scrub through our lives to seek to eliminate whatever is there that has no genuine eternal value. And I'm not saying this with high levels of judgment. You probably know right now some things that you're like, that takes more energy and attention that it deserves. Figure it out for yourselves. Ask your spouse, ask your small group, ask your accountability partners, and wake up from your stupor, eliminate it, go after it like a, like, you're, like a warrior. How dare you distract me? Get indignant about that. What does Jesus say when his disciples express faith in him? Someone comes to him and gets that's uh, gets, healed, and they, they fall in love with him, and they cry out his, his name and holiness. And well, what, is, what does he tell his disciples as he's preparing them for the mission he's given to them? Congratulations, you've made it, you're saved. Now go take a nap. No. He tells them repeatedly, be ready, be watchful, stay vigilant, stay awake. He says this over and over and over. Uh, particular point of application here for young men and young women. If you're looking forward, it doesn't matter your age, if you're looking forward and thinking, I, I, I may be in the market for a spouse someday, and I'm going to have to vet somebody and say, is this, is this someone that the Lord would want me to marry? Or this is, is this a wise person to, to, uh, to continue my life together with? 
and unity. Christians are usually, I think, pretty good at saying it needs to be another believer. I hope that's the case. You, do, you need to marry another believer. That's, that's important. But unfortunately, I actually do think that it's way too often that people just have that as the bare minimum. Ah, well, he said that one time he's a Christian, so we're equally yoked. Stop, stop, stop. As, as a brother in Christ, if I were to talk to a young man or woman who's trying to vet a candidate for wifing, I would say, does she take her life and faith seriously? That's what I want to know. I don't want to know if she's done the bare minimum. I, I, well, I'm a member of a church somewhere, and sure, why not? I believe in Jesus. No, no, I want to know, does she really believe heaven and hell, eternal realities, take life seriously? Or are her highest goals a pretty house, a few kids and a dog, a successful business, traveling the world, being a foodie? What are her actual goals? What does he actually want out of life? That's what we would press for. As a brother, sisters, if you ever bring a young man before us, uh, we, we don't do that shotgun across the lap thing. I don't care about the shotgun across the lap thing. I want to get to the brass tacks with somebody and find out, do you take your life seriously? You can disagree with a whole host of doctrines. You can take slightly different views on a bunch of stuff that's in the Bible. Listen, that's not what's most important. When I'm going to have to sit down, I have four daughters, when I have to sit down with these men someday in the future, what I expect may come, and vet candidates for marriage, that's what I want to know. Do they take their life and faith seriously? Because if that's there, the Lord's going to work. They're going to be sanctified. They're going to grow. That's what we want. A few more. I'll go quicker here. Number four, what a right perspective on heaven and hell produces in the life of a believer, a sound trust in God's justice. A sound trust in God's justice. Let me say it this way. Somebody in your life has wronged you, wronged you grievously, like really wronged you, and they probably got away with it. And if they didn't wholesale get away with it, what they got was this, Slap on the wrist while you spent days in the hospital. Okay? And if it hasn't happened to you yet, if no human has sinned against you that awfully, it's probably coming in your life, in your future at some point. People are going to hurt you. They're going to wrong you. They're going to sin against you, and you can't do anything about it. Your government will sin against you. Your boss will sin against you. Your neighbors will sin against you. Your spouse will sin against you. Those closest to you can turn their backs on you. You are going to endure significant hardships. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that in your heart? Psalm 37.8 says this. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Great verse. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. What do you think... Satan's going to do with those thoughts of your heart if you sit there and pine over how he got away with it. People think he's a great guy. She's saying this stuff and they're believing her. What are you going to do? You're going to fret and what, what is the enemy going to do with that? He's going he's to manipulate that into all type of awful things. Fret not yourself. How can the Bible say that? How can it say just let it go? How can Paul say this in Romans 12, 19? Beloved, never avenge yourselves. How can he say that? And the answer is because of what comes next. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Why should you not avenge yourselves? Why should you not pine over the wrong that somebody has done? 
and keep yourself up late at night thinking of ways to get justice? Why can you let it go? Because God doesn't care about justice? There's no such thing as right or wrong or punishment for those things? No, because he will bring about perfect justice at the perfect time. You know what Revelation 20 tells us at the the final judgment where the people gather around God, literally Jesus on a throne brings all the people who've ever died are resurrected to a judgment, a judgment of punishment. It says here, John 5 will say the same thing. And he resurrects the bodies of the dead and he lines them up to dole out punishment. What, What does that say? He will read the books of their deeds and they will be punished according to what they have done. Not even according to what you think they have done, but what God actually knows. You think that person only hurt you? No, no, there's way more that God knows about. Okay? God will judge it. Or better, or better, that judgment will land on the shoulders of Christ. And that sinner will have his or her sins forgiven, just as yours were, And you can run into that saved sinner in heaven and rejoice without one ounce of unforgiveness in you because there will be forgiveness flowing with abundance in heaven. And if you can have a memory of wickedness done to you, it can be something that the two of you can celebrate together that Christ has redeemed. And it will produce eternal joy. No matter what happens with the sins that have been committed against you, because of heaven and hell, God will deal with them with perfect satisfaction and perfect justice. Fifth, it'll produce a worshipful heart. What could be better? What could be better? Just consider the gravity of this. I was, I was with my, my son this past week. He was reading through one of those would-you-rather books with a friend. You know, you know those would-you-rather questions? I came up with one of my own. Let me try this out with you guys. Would you rather swim in a pool filled with rusty razor blades or receive a gift of $10 million tax-free? Tricky. You'd say, how is that even a question? The disparity between those two things. Why would you make a new book like that? Because it's so obvious. Who would choose that over this? Guys, you, you, you see where I'm going with this silly illustration. The, 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 the difference, the disparity between heaven and hell is infinitely more than a silly something like that. To simply ponder the gravity of eternity, that we were once headed towards perishing, and now we get heaven. That causes rejoicing. I think of the song, Blessed Assurance. It's been running through my mind a lot in the last several months. I've been singing it all the time. I'm thinking of it. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Its third stanza says this. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior and happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. (laughs) When you consider what you get, and where you're headed, and where he is, and what he has secured. How can you not sing? How can you not worship forever? 
This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. That's what we sing because it's just too good. Lastly, just to close here, a sixth point. There's so many more we could put in here, but just let me wrap with this. A right perspective on heaven and hell produces in the heart of a believer relief from despair. Relief from despair. We have salvation. We have the Holy Spirit in us, indwelled. We have the church. We have God's word. But with all of those things, we have pain and suffering and strife and hardships. But when we take full reception of eternal life, no more of this grief will we bear. Not one bit. Pain will be no more. Sorrow, no more. The cause for sin, no more. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul even encourages Christians. He says, listen, Christians are going to die in your day. He calls it as innocuous as as sleep. He goes, they've fallen asleep. It's not hurting them at all. And what does he say to encourage the believers who, who outlive those who die before them? What does he say to them? Do not grieve as those who have no hope. You'll see them again. And it'll be far better. He points to the goodness of the resurrection. Even when things are super rough, you need to remember this. When I focus on my circumstances, I get discouraged. When I focus on Christ, I can't help but feeling encouraged. Look at these realities. Put in stock what you have to carry now in the real, genuine, actual hardships that you have to face on every given day. The Bible can say this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. You know, This life is the only shot you get to worship Jesus like that. It's the only shot you get. You will never be able to obey James 1, 2 through 4 again after you die, ever. You will not be able to rejoice in suffering ever again. You will not be able to praise him in the storm ever again. You will not be able to cry out to him and say, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You say that now. Second Corinthians 4.17 summarizes it beautifully. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Heaven is a place where all of your sins are forever remembered, hell forever, forever forgotten, and hell is a place where they are forever remembered. If you're a believer, that means that everything you'll experience in this life Listen, this sounds kitschy. I mean it really. Everything you experience in life is worse than death. Everything. Everything. Your most joyful moment. You you, you standing in the room when uh, the nurse wraps the baby and hands you a healthy baby. And you're weeping. Boogers. Your death will be better if you're a believer, then that joy. You get it? This is the closest to hell that you will ever, ever get. And that's something worth rejoicing over. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for these realities. Lord, we pray that we do not overly dwell, overly emphasize 
heaven or overly emphasize hell or, Lord, that we forsake either in our thoughts. God, we just want to think about these exactly as you have told us. Help us to think rightly about them. Help us to drive us compassionately towards missions, out of despair, into a greater trust in you with justice. Lord, help us to bind us together as brothers and sisters and help us to be something that we celebrate and give you worship for day after day because we deserve the most awful and miserable existence and we get the best that could possibly be imagined. Thank you for that gracious truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.